Hi, and welcome to The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And this week we're going to be covering the end of the beginning, <laughs> or the, or pretty much the end of the road uh, for Nikki Haley. We're going to cover the New Hampshire primaries, um, both Republican and Democratic, although the Democratic one, spoiler alert, Joe Biden won, hey. there is no Democratic primary. But before we get to the actual uh, important one, uh, Sarah. What are you eating and what's eating you? Well, Matt, I'll get into it. Uh, And I hate, like, I've been vaguely talking about the fact that I have been trying to correct my uh, sort of endocrine system and, like, a lot of familial type 2 diabetes. And that's been very successful. And in the process of this, I have officially lost 45 pounds. uh, And I went to go try on pants this week. And I found that I am completely all straight sizes. Um. Mm And I just want to say what is what I am eating uh, is whatever the fuck I want. And that's a subject for another day. (laughs) But what is eating me is please, first of all, if you're out there and you have in any way ever struggled with weight or weight loss or gain, please read The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. It is an extraordinary dry, morality-free explanation of how the human metabolism actually fucking mm-hmm. works. And I'm telling you, I firmly believe that if every every person in the world gets good information, they make good decisions with it, right? And uh, if you have ever dipped into the diet sphere, you know how much just like wild and bizarre prognostication, entirely unburdened by scientific fact or clinical reality, uh, exists out there. And Dr. Jason Fung is Canadian. He is a nephrologist, which means he's a kidney doctor, and he works with almost exclusively type 2 diabetic patients. Uh, and so he's he's just a real bullshit-free kind of guy. And uh, I have to just say that this book has been out since 2015, and I only got that knowledge in 2020, and Lord have mercy, am I pissed. Uh, so I'm recommending every single person read that. It just demystified this, you know, very fraught and and opaque process. And I'm telling you, I'm 45 pounds down with no end in sight, and you can do it. You need good information. So that's my soapbox item of the day. And uh, uh, as far as you're going, what is eating you and what are you eating? <laughs> so I, I just want to say amen to everything that you just said. And also, um, for those of you who do not struggle with your weight, I think it's important to read it too so that you yeah. stop being judgmental assholes. 100%. 100%. And, you, and it will, if you've never struggled with your weight, it will just make you very, very grateful that despite the onslaught of endocrine uh, disruptors that exist and like the way the American diet is structured, mm-hmm. for example, how many times, Matt, have you heard the advice, oh, well, you need to eat five times a day to keep your metabolism up? <laughs> yeah, that is freaking hilarious. It's hilarious and it's so bizarrely wrong. It is such a, after you read this book and you realize that that like headline news style advice is one of the singularly most destructive things that you could do for your endocrine system. You're, you're going to be pissed like me. And I'm sorry for when you get to that point, but like, 
Oh my God. You're the point is if you've been struggling with your weight, you're probably not doing anything wrong. You're probably yeah. doing all the advice that you've been told to do and it's not working because all those people giving you the advice are not doctors and they don't know shit yeah. about fuck about the <laughs> say, they don't they don't know what they're talking about. They mm-hmm. have a sample size of their own bodies. Uh, Correct. <laughs> and that's it. Um and like uh this is entire other episode. I know we're gonna get into it. Um <laughs> but like you know, I, I've mentioned before, I've lived in multiple bodies. My body has changed a lot over the years um, and it needs different things. But you know what I was eating? I was eating homemade banana bread. Yes. I had for breakfast and dessert yes. uh, <laughs> for uh, for dinner. Um, and uh, it was delicious. The key was is that um, my lady friend uh, this time used five bananas instead of four bananas. And it Beautiful. went from excellent to absolutely transcendent. <laughs> um, and all I have to say is uh, banana bread. <laughs> Especially if it's homemade. Like what's really cool. Um, I'm I'm really going to get off this. I'm just still kind of tripped up at like standing. Last night I wore my little little jeans and a belt and like a shirt that was like over the waistline. And if you've Mm. ever been big and self-conscious about like gaining a stomach, you know that it's just like, what are you doing showing your stomach to people, you lunatic? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But like homemade banana bread is absolutely something you should eat. You know what I mean? It's like this whole thing about like, this food's good and this food's bad. First of all, like, did you love it? Did did Mm -hmm. someone that you love make it caringly for you, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Like all these things still factor into dieting and feeling good and having, you know, your food is emotional and it cracks me up. Having done this myself, how many times people be like, well, from now on, I shall have no pleasure from food. And this is going to work forever. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, okay. I, I, <laughs> and like, because one of the keys I found for uh, maintaining, you know, a healthy uh, body for me is eating the things I like, but specifically things that give me joy because I have to eat less of them to feel happy. Yes. That like that one piece of beautiful, gorgeous, homemade banana bread fills more inside my body and my soul than any number of Pringles ever could. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So you wind up, if you try to rob yourself of that sort of like love and happiness and like light, like you're going to wind up with this deep sucking void that you're going to cram full in like of shame eating. So like, oh. stop. Oh, it, the grip, the more, the more power, which now I realize what this was, but like, you know, ascribing a lot of power to food is kind of like one of the um, offshoots of like diet culture. And I remember uh, a few years ago, my boss at the contact tracing job who hated my fucking guts. Cause I was just mm-hmm. like, this job is really not that important. You need to get off everybody's ass. But her treadmill was broken over Thanksgiving. And she said, you know, Thanksgiving is usually the day that I just let myself indulge. But then I run a lot the day before and after. And I was like, me, you know, thinking I was making a lighthearted comment and that everybody else was like cool with their own food stuff. I was like, oh, you know, just eat your Thanksgiving and enjoy it. Like it's, you know, it's a day that's meant to be free from this stuff. Just enjoy it with your family and, you know, don't think about it too much. One day of overindulging has never, ever pushed anybody off of a long path, right? No. 
boy, was she mad about me saying that. It was like, it was, she took that. And this is, this is, again, this is diet culture. This is what we talk about. This, she took that as, why don't you just get real big and fat? Why don't you just give up and just get morbidly obese? Like, why don't you, are you just going to just be fat then? Just be fat. (laughs) Well, speaking of big and fat, um, (laughs) Donald Trump (laughs) won the New Hampshire primary. No surprise. Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm sorry. I know I need to pivot us away from the the fun stuff, but like, this means Nikki Haley came in second place uh, as of, they actually haven't finished counting all the votes yet. Um, Notice that Republicans aren't freaking out about this because when white people vote, it's not a problem. Well, of course. Um, So with 98% uh, of votes counted, uh, Donald Trump's at 54.3% to Nikki Haley's 43.3%, meaning Trump won 12 delegates, Haley got nine. I want to note that while most Republican primaries are winner-take-all, the ones before March 15th are proportional. Okay. And um, this didn't matter this time around, uh, but the rules had been changed so that it was actually, if there had been multiple candidates, it would have been harder for multiple candidates to win delegates. Yeah. But all in all, this doesn't look like a huge defeat for Haley, but we're going to go into why this basically ends um, her chances at the uh, Republican nomination. But Sarah, Nikki Haley did not immediately as of recording um, on uh Thursday, January 25th, 10.20 a.m. Eastern Time. Haley has not conceded the election. Um, The next major race is in about a month in South Carolina, where Haley is uh, about 30 points behind Trump in the polls, South Carolina being Haley's home state. Fantastic. What do you anticipate Haley's thinking? What do you you get the vibe that uh, Haley is thinking at the moment? Uh, well, I think it's best described by my favorite Hard Times headline this week, which was uh, Nikki Haley refuses to drop out of race, endorses Trump, um, uh, which is exactly what's going on, right? Like Nikki Haley is, again, a smart politician, like did was successful for a while. She's just reading the tea leaves and she's going like, well, what is Trump like? Sycophants, right? Like what what would Trump like other than a, you know. He, he wants a, a roster of like known people, you know, but and sycophants first and then just like, you know, these kind of known quantities. And he loves one of Trump's favorite things is truly just pissing off the libs. Right. Like he says and does things. And this is according to um, like an anonymously quoted source inside the White House and inside his staff, which was like he really, really, truly just likes pissing off the libs. Like there isn't a lot more sophistication behind his messaging than that. <laughs> yeah. And I think if Haley can successfully position herself as like uh, pissing off the libs, maybe she can get like kind of a Mike Pence style, mm-hmm. you know, running mate seat. Um but I, I don't know, you know, more than anything, I think people on the right are like generally trying to audition for uh, talking head spots on Fox News. And I would assume that she's doing the same because once she loses this, her career is basically over. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think that Haley has to be assessing whether or not there actually is a spot for her in the uh, Trump 
2024 presidency, if there is one, in the Republican Party moving forward. And I'm not sure there necessarily is. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the breakdown of voting, because I think that it's really interesting because um, New Hampshire, for those of you who don't know, is an unusual state. The Republican Party there is unusual, as is their primary setup. So I went to college there. No big deal. Yeah. And the conservatives (laughs) there um, tend to be more libertarian than like hardcore MAGA types. So this is why Haley losing New Hampshire by double digits is particularly bad for her because it's probably the best state in the nation (laughs) uh, for her. So the two big stories coming out of this are the education gap and the gender gap. So let's start with the education gap. So Trump is supported by 76% of Republican voters without a bachelor's degree, but only 39% of those with a bachelor's degree. Yep. And that's Republican voters. The numbers yep. are worse for him nationally um, when you among college-educated voters when you include independents and uh, liberals. Why do you think that is? Because this has been a durable aspect of uh, Trump's politics. Why do you think, Sarah, college-educated voters really don't like the man? Uh, Well, unfortunately, college uh, teaches you multiple things. And in many situations, it is a combination chiefly of critical thinking and how to get along with strangers in small spaces and how to compromise and sacrifice in a way to make a common peace, right? Like, um, and this is why I say, like, if at all possible, if it's affordable for you, you need to get away from your hometown when you go to college because this idea of coming into contact with all these different peoples from different cities and cultures and, you know, ethnic and religious backgrounds, like, um, it's really essential to learning how to, like, get along and have common goals as an adult to do, to do that. But if you've never done that, then the appeal of someone whose whole thing is, fuck you, my way or the highway, you know... Uh, and you've never really had to do any of that. And like, you know, you've always known everyone in your small town and you kind of grew up with this like in implanted sort of milieu of how to, uh, you know, behave and represent yourself. Then a guy who comes in and says, well, fuck all y'all's rules. Cause, uh, this shit is for F slurs. Um, that's. (laughs) a very, very appealing message for you in a way that it wouldn't be for people who have had to do that and encountered that person in those environments and known how incredibly destructive that kind of person is. <laughs> so there was this moment um, when I was I was watching the coverage on, uh, uh, on Tuesday night and they were interviewing Trump voters as they are wont <laughs> to do, as reporters are wont to do, asking why they supported Trump. And... Um, it was one of the more brutal things I've ever seen on TV of Trump voters desperately trying to get together their brain cells enough to articulate oh, no. a reason why they supported Trump that wasn't like, we hate Mexicans. Oh, no. And I want to know, this is in New Hampshire. Um, so New, Hampshire <laughs> New Hampshire is one of the most educated states in, uh, <laughs> in the country. 41% of people 25 and older have a bachelor's degree have a four-year uh, bachelor's degree or wow. more. So that's significantly above the national average. Um, and, you know, like you were talking about why it's important, you know, when you leave, you leave college, most people leave their hometown, you know. Um, 
I, I did go to an Ivy League school. I am one of those coastal Ooh. elites that all of y'all hate. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, fuck me. I know. Um, and, but the school I went to is, you know, in New Hampshire is in, in such a tiny town in the middle of nowhere that like the townies are all like the children of the professors. Yes. So like the only one of uh, only person I knew who actually grew up there uh, was the daughter of one of the tenured chemistry professors who not only was a year younger than us because she skipped a year, she was already trilingual walking through the door. She spoke uh, Polish, English, and French fluently. Uh, And like, yeah. So like, you know, not your average townie. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and I have to say my school produced uh, the absolute intellectual heavyweights of uh, Dinesh D'Souza and uh, Laura Ingram. Also Jake Tapper. So I guess we got that. And Dr. Seuss. So I guess we got that going for us. I'm actually just going to put Dr. Seuss as the only one I'm going to separate from that group, right? Like yeah. <laughs> at some point you you all chose cable 24-hour news as your platform, as like the trajectory of your career. And, you know. Oh, and Mindy Kaling. Come on, oh, give okay. us Mindy Kaling. All right. Unfortunately, we also produced Rachel Dratch, so it's sort of like... What? Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. Yeah. There will be no Dratch slander in this house right now. <laughs> Less, uh, so I was actually in the comedy group that was uh, that both Dratch and uh, Mindy were, were uh, alums of, and let's just say one was more beloved than the other. Mm, uh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but this is like... So this was an eye-opening experience because... As you can imagine, for a lot of people who are there, this was the first time meeting folks from literally all over the world. That, like, my first real friend in college uh, was a guy named Nicholas, who was who is literally the cleverest man in Kenya. Like, there's a test he won, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, Amazing. And it was the first time I really met someone who I instantly knew was like unfathomably smarter than I was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That was really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, but like the kindest, most down to earth dude ever. Also, uh, Nicholas used to dress in these beautiful suits because, in addition to getting a full ride, he also had got a clothing budget from the school. <sighs> That's how in demand he was. And I asked him why he always wore like was always so sharply dressed, and he said, "You know, uh, I I dressed poor for a very long time, and I'm never going to do it again." <laughs> uh, good for you, Nicholas. Fuck um, yeah. And that kind of experience is both humbling and expanding in a way that very few things are. Yeah. And you meet a lot of blowhards <laughs> as you move through, you know, these sort of institutions. And everyone, you get really good at just picking them out. Yeah. Um, and Trump is just like the classic rich kid douchebag who bought his way into a top school and doesn't belong there. Yep. Like he brags about going to Wharton undergrad um (laughs) yes shade um and so like everyone knows that guy when you've been there so it's just completely unimpressive yeah right because you've been in a class project with that asshole and he did nothing complained the whole time and then took credit for everything you know it's like yeah there you go fuck you bro there like i don't again i don't generally believe in binaries but 
the one that I do believe in is people who participated in group projects and people who rode on the backs of the participation in of other people's group projects. Mm-hmm. And it, this actually does perfectly bifurcate the world in many ways, which is like people who believe in vast conspiracy theories tend to be the ones who didn't participate in their group projects because... <laughs> If you've ever tried to get anybody to like add notes to a communal word document, um, it's nightmare shit. And uh, if you believe that you can get any more than like, I don't know, maybe two to three people to be particularly motivated to like do one thing, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Yeah, you're just dead wrong. So there's actually (laughs) really interesting research on how many people can keep a conspiracy. Awesome. Right. So, for example, the moon landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make the moon, the Apollo 11 conspiracy to be true, Oxford University physicist and cancer biologist David Robert Grimes, who is also a journalist, wrote an equation estimating how long a large-scale conspiracy can last before someone intentionally or unintentionally reveals it. So for Apollo 11, there have to be 400,000 people. Incredible. Who would either directly work on it, indirectly work on it, or would know about it, Right. So <laughs> the lifespan of a big conspiracy, right, basically de- uh, it depends on the number of conspirators, the passage of time, and the probability of a whistleblower, right? So it got tested. It's really interesting. And so the for the Apollo 11, with that 400,000 people, it would have become public knowledge estimating in about 3.68 years. <laughs> Meaning in 1968. (laughs) Right? So climate change, 405,000 people would have to be involved, which would make 3.7 years. Uh, Vaccination would be about 3.15 years. Perfect. Right? But if you didn't have to have drug companies involved, you would do it just at the CDC and the WHO. Could be 22,000 people. Could have lasted about 35 years. Okay, now that one makes more sense, except that the 35 years obviously outlasts all the other vaccine tests that we uh, successfully completed in our... Exactly, (laughs) right? And also, that would mean that literally the WHO and the CDC were producing all the vaccines themselves and yada, 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 right? So if you want more than five years, you'd need no more than 2,521 people to be actively participating. Yep. The last 25 years, you have to be at 502 to last 100, 125 people tops. Fascinating. The idea of scientists, by the way, if you've ever met scientists, (laughs) getting them to agree over a long period of time on anything. Yeah. They make their career off of debunking each other. I mean, I was going to say, like, debunking, if you want to read it in the most, like, sort of cynical way, but, you know, like, they're in, they are in a continual process of discovery. And again, one of the things that makes a scientific uh, study or, like, procedure correct is that you take all that same shit and you move it over to somebody else's lab and they do the exact same experiment. They should get relatively similar results, right? Like, this should be repeatable. Exactly. Uh, Also, if you've ever worked or participated in any of the politics of academia, uh, as one of my mentors once told me, the fights are so bitter because the stakes are so low. Uh, (laughs) But like if anyone, anyone is falsifying data, 
making up research. It does come out. Yeah. Um, and some other person in your department or a, or a, a former student who hates you, right? They, and, and you're trying to hide that shit. They are going to find it. They might find it toward the end of their career, but they will find it. They will publish it. They will make their career by climbing over the bloated corpse of your own. <laughs> I do think, by the way, like, so in this sort of modern age, there has been, of course, an explosion in, uh, let's say, scientific journals in heavy quotations with rather elastic standards, right? But like, uh, this this is why I firmly believe that if a study has ever had to have been redacted from a journal, that should be the first thing listed before like the actual study title is like, what journal was it redacted? Was it redacted from uh, what year? And then a link to like the um, uh, uh, redacted is not the wrong word or redacted is the wrong word. What am I thinking of? Uh, retracted, retracted. retracted. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like uh, it has to link to whatever they wrote about the retraction when it was retracted, right? Like, because mm -hmm. it, it's really frustrating. <clears throat> I mean, this is shit to do about fuck, but it is frustrating to see a lot of people use these like very easily, you know, snuck by sort of standards in these like little journals. Uh, and then not often a lot of follow-up once the conspiracy crowd has the confirming fact they were always looking for. Mm -hmm. <sighs> so now let's get to the gender split. Okay. So... I want to give a little bit of background information on this is that we have seen gender polarization uh, among voters with women splitting to Democrats and men splitting more conservative for since basically the 1980s and then accelerating through the 90s. Yep. A little bit of background research on this is it was actually men who polarized first, that men started polarizing in the 80s and 90s, voting more Republican. And it actually was a substantial lag. It was only in the late 2010s and accelerating, uh, sorry, the late uh, 2000s and then accelerating through the 2010s that women started polarizing as well and still not as much as men. So as you can imagine, Donald Trump absolutely won the primary by cleaning up among Republican men because Haley ran pretty much even among women. Wild. So this actually, what I find fascinating about this is that Republican women split about 50-50. It was 48 to 50 um, with 2% voting for somebody else. Hmm. So Republican women were remarkably even-handed. It's Republican men who are deeply polarized. Any possible explanations in your mind why conservative men might have uh, voted overwhelmingly for the man against the uh, brown woman? You know, <laughs> the mind truly boggles, right, with all the many, many possibilities. <laughs> um, you know, what's so, what what is always good to, to remind people who are like kind of on the fence about voting, which is that Trump voters are primarily grievance motivated. And they have an extreme, like my father, my father believes that because a lot of 90s sitcoms featured like kind of a fat, dumpy dad and a sarcastic wife that like white men are persecuted, like <laughs> white men are like a persecuted minority. And I said, run that back, run that back by me one more time, Charles, like run that, 
run that one by me again. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and you know, primarily and this is like, this is the whole, like, this is what intersectionality is, right. Which is like, who has the most power white men in America, right? Like, and then you can kind of step down this like Plinko ladder of like mm-hmm. where the grievance lies, right. Who are they persecuted by? Right. Like men of a different race, and women of the same race, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is always like set up as like, these are the two groups coming for our jabs or like, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and also there's been um, a really successful run of like anti-feminist content on mm-hmm. social media recently. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> if y'all don't know, and some of them don't know the whole trad wife thing is by and large fetish content. Um, like whether they realize it or not, like it's just like women who have yet to discover the concept of a praise kink or, um, I mean, there is like a a specific, very specific, um, kind of Dom sub relationship that is called fifties housewife. Right. It's like, that's the, that's the deal. Um, and so I, I think that there's kind of a couple things going on, which is that like anytime a group, of people who have been historically marginalized find new power and a voice, there will always be a subsection of them. That's like, you know, maybe actually we should go back to the way it was. Cause like they just can't wrap their heads around having a voice and a choice. And a, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, in some ways, like submission to another group is simplifies the sort of process, the mental process of being a subjugated person. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to negotiate there. But yeah, like, of course, men who feel a grievance towards brown people and women are probably not going to be like, you know, that's one vote in the brown lady box for me. (laughs) I I, I love that. It is that simple, right? Yeah. Like, sometimes it's not more complicated than what it says on the tin. Um. That, like, these are people who have been railing against Hillary Clinton, railing against Barack Obama, rail, you know, spreading bur- – like, Trump – there's a reason why Trump was saying that Nikki Haley, because she's the daughter of immigrants um, – I want to note non-white immigrants mm-hmm. – um, was not eligible to run for president. It was mm-hmm. birtherism all over again, noting that – I want to note that, you know, all but one of his children are also, uh, you know, children of immigrants. But note that they're white immigrants, so they, they count, right? They're real Americans. And they are, uh, they use their immigrant status and their bodies as a bargaining chip. And as long as, I really believe that like most Republicans are actually fine with uh, just a subclass of immigrants, right? Like I think a lot of this anti-immigrant sentiment is like, well, you can do my dishes at the Mexican restaurant. Like, of course Mm -hmm. you can. Of course you can suck my cock until you pop out a baby, in which case I'm going to find some other stupid bitch to suck my cock while you're doing that. Like- as long as it is a devaluing, subjugating place, like that is uh, most white Republicans, like perfect America. <clears throat> What's pissing them off is all these people saying like, oh, no, I, I actually get to talk about the way that you personally like profited off of my subjugation and like that it was an emotional experience of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yep. I mean, it's, <coughs> it's Corey Robbins thesis in The Reactionary Mind. For those of you who haven't read it, read it. It's a uh, uh, historian's look at the trying to find the philosophical underpinning that links Edmund Burke, like the philosophical father of conservatism, to Donald Trump by the updated uh, version, because originally it was written uh, in 2011. 
for Sarah Palin, but then Incredible. he updated it after Trump to include Trump. It's the, and also I've read both editions, the revised editions better. So the key thing that underpins the whole thing, and I agree with Robin, and I think the Trump years have borne this out, is that a conservative is simply someone who opposes when uh, opposes any calls for oppressed people for emancipation. That's it. It doesn't, and who the oppressed per- people are changes over time. It could be the Irish one year, women, uh, black people, whatever. The, the the key thing that the conservative does is looks at that. The people are like, you know, can you treat us fairly? Let us be free, be equal citizens. And the conservative says, nah. <laughs> yeah, and and <clears throat> the modern iteration of this, <clears throat> excuse me, I think is a hundred times more insidious, right? Like, so this is why this is. basically the entire reason you and I have this podcast, right? Is how like deeply intertwined and interwoven like concepts uh, are used to like motivate people against the other ones. And like in this now 21st century, we've lived through the 20th century iteration of like, Oh, I mean, it's, it's wild that the left gets tagged with vast left-wing conspiracy. Um, when, um, uh, behind the bastard just did a really, really great, explainer of how orange county california is like one of the great engines of sort of modern hateful conservatism as we know it today like it is wild it's wild it's and the thing that he talks about is gold rush cultures that like gold rush cultures whatever the gold rush is silicon valley the literal gold rush in like alaska this was of course the one in california but (coughs) gold rush cultures um create this like super exploitive culture around them. And I think that we can see, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? Like these people of color are demanding just a dignified life. Right. And it's like, but like you guys, it's our, it's your job to just like be exploited and like take the peanuts and say, thank you. Like, what are you doing? And this is why I think that the split among Republican women is so fascinating to me is like, they have failed to internalize this. They're still acting as if there's a fair shot for everyone in their party. And all the men are just like, <laughs> Republican men are like, yeah, sure there is. Yeah, yeah sure there is. Um, meanwhile, I, I honestly think, so I'm getting into a little thing, but like a uh, little bit of a conceptual theoretical direction, but like white women are often, so like rich white men are always fully human. Yep. constantly right yep. their rights are always vindicated they're allowed to be angry they're allowed to that's air right. their grievances that's right and white women are allowed to air their grievances insofar as those grievances do not conflict with the interests of rich white men so when a, a white woman is you know sexually assaulted or threatened sexual assault against a black man or losing their job or whatever suddenly her rights have to be vindicated correct but i remember one of my friends telling me that her she became a feminist very specifically during the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah. When she saw Christine Blasey Ford, who has a PhD, is a professor, like the successful woman who my friend is similar to, highly educated, successful, and she has this compelling story, truthful, uh, of being uh, sexually assaulted by a young Brett Kavanaugh. Ugh. Um, and in my mind, truthful. It's still just allegations, but I just want to make that clear. <coughs> also, and my friend found her truthful. 
I was going to say, like, I came from that, like, not exactly that level of, like, wealth, but, like, certainly that, like, exclusive sort of prep school environment. And, like, I think you with your Ivy League, like, you know exactly the kind of, like, seething, laughing, hateful misogynist that Brett Kavanaugh represents, right? Like, it is... It is the kind of person who would sexually assault you and then say, like, well, it wasn't sexual because, like, you're not hot, right? Like, it's just, like, you know, it's always it's always hate in triplicate. Um, anyway, so, yeah, she, she felt very, very – the whole scene felt so familiar to me as something I yeah. could have witnessed at a high school party. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And she thought in that moment, surely she's going to be believed. Right. Because she believes that she's a full participant in elite society, in, yep. in elite discourse, in elite circles. And to see the way that she was demonized and denigrated, and suddenly all of her accolades, all of her uh, accomplishments did not matter. There her credibility did not matter. Yep. Her interests did not matter. Instead, Brett Kavanaugh was the victim because oh my God, like he's worked so hard for this. Right? Cried, cried on the stand about how much he likes beer. I'm just yeah. saying like, I have never in a million years seen a woman weep like that, bef- like in a job interview and gotten the job. Let me put it that way. <laughs> she, exactly. Like this is something that uh, uh, people of color, women know very, very well. Is that- oh, Black women, talk to black women about how short the leash is on their acceptable range of emotions, right? Like, I I have had not so many, but like, I remember having just like a handful of occasions where like the misogynoir was so thick in these comments about like my black coworkers voicing any objection, any opinion, any like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, oh, another angry black person in the workplace. And I'm like, well, fuck yeah, I would be too if someone talked to me like that all the time, the way you do. Right. And the fact that they're not exploding constantly at people is like, an, is colossal and unbelievable levels of self-control. Unbelievable. And like, my friend became a feminist in this moment because she realized is that she was only allowed in these circles, as long as her interest coincided with the rich white dudes around her, that the moment she would ever threaten anything that they really wanted, suddenly she's a bitch, she's a liar. And then, like, right-wing publications are saying, even if he did it, even if Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her, he should still be elevated. Oh, gosh, we all make mistakes, you know? Like, Why should one moment as a teenager throw away all the other things that he's accomplished. 10 minutes later. Well, yeah. <laughs> I you know, I don't know why you want an abortion just cuz you're 14, like you made a choice and now you got to live with it for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like at that I think that for a lot of people they discover that their humanity is is contingent. Yes. Right? Yes. It's contingent. And white women discover this I think they can fool themselves into thinking like the white Republican voters in New Hampshire, the white female voters that like they can treat everyone even handedly because Lord knows they would be treated fairly. Look at the men around them. Look how wonderful they are. And the men around them are like, of course, honey. And then they're just like, (laughs) I mean, listen, Margaret Atwood already went over this. Serena is supposed to speak to the big old council of men and she's got a little speech prepared and she's like, I have a voice among the men. 
and I am special and none of this will ever harm me. And then right when she goes up to speak, they're like, no, no, go sit down. Like no one wants to hear from you. And she's like, but wait, I had a whole speech prepared and I have this green dress on. And like, then she's like, oh no, I believe the lion is actually eating my face after I voted lions eating faces. (laughs) Speaking of lions eating faces. Um, So let's get back to New Hampshire. So 46% of the voters uh, in the New Hampshire primary were actually not registered Republicans. They were Hmm. registered as undeclared. Very uh, common in New Hampshire again. Very common. And Haley won those undeclared voters 65 to 34, which notes that registered Republicans absolutely went overwhelmingly for Trump. So when people are wondering why Haley could do with score within 11 points of Trump in New Hampshire, and yet she's down by over 30 in South Carolina, it's because the South Carolina primaries, first of all, don't allow this uh, yeah. independent, uh, uh, unregistered, undeclared voters to vote in the Republican primary. Uh, it has to just be Republicans. And guess what? Re- the Republicans who are left as registered Republicans um, are disproportionately white dudes and that means they love they love the don i mean this is this is what we need to remember now like eliminate from your mind the concept of a moderate republican right like there is now we can i think we can confidently say there are trump republicans and then there are independents slash undeclareds like i i don't think that there's any no one lived through 2016 through 2020 who was like, well, this is a great idea. Let's do this again. Right. Like who was a Republican? And I know yeah. so many like pretty middle of the road Republicans who kind of felt like they had been hit by a car in 2016. You know what I mean? They were just like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is going on? And now, you know, one of my friends is like this. I love, I love this dude, Kevin in Texas. Uh, he's just like a, like, you know, Texas dad like you know he's got like a kid in football one of his kids a cheerleader and like he's a hilarious dude just for just as an example because I love this story right when the pandemic started no one could go out to eat he bought a big flat um griddle and then got uh one of the silly chef's hats from uh like the and then did a hibachi dinner for them um Mm -hmm. this just you know and he was he was a long time lifelong you know, centrist conservative. And I was like, how are you feeling right now? And he's like, like, I'm about to vote for a bunch of Democrats. And like, you know, like this is fucking crazy. He didn't, he doesn't use the word fucking. He's a Christian man. But he was (laughs) like, this is insane. This makes me feel like I'm having an out of body experience. The amount of conversations I have with people that I've known for a long time who are like, you know, I'm really liking this Trump guy. And you're like, we go to the same church. We read the same Bible. Like, how is this possible? So anyway, the long story is uh, give up on the idea that you're going to like win over some middle of the road Trump voters. Like the only thing you can get them to do is vote for not Trump or not vote. So can I ask you in New Hampshire, a state famously far away from the southern border, um, what was top of mind for Trump voters? Immigration. Now, Illegal immigration. What is one thing that New Hampshire does not get a lot of? A lot of illegal immigrants. And if they do get them, they're from Canada. So. Yeah. Mm. 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 So my question to you is what are Trump voters really saying in New Hampshire when they say that immigration is is top of their mind? Uh, it's um, 
it's the racism map. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, yeah. let's not pussyfoot. It's just that yep. brown people are scary and people who speak different languages are scary and they want everything to be exactly like it was when they were six years old and they had their huffy stardust and they were buzzing around the neighborhood and life was simple because they had no bills and no responsibilities. It wasn't the culture, Matthew. Yeah. And uh, so of the people who said that uh, the con- that they were very worried about the country's direction right now, 81% of the New Hampshire Republican voters uh, went for Trump. Now, objectively, Sarah. How is the country doing right now? Um, mm, what a complicated question. Well, on paper, inflation's slowing, which is great, mm-hmm. and jobs are increasing. So, mm-hmm. um, generally, like racist and especially like immigrant-based fears tend to crop up when the economy is very bad, right? Like. Mm-hmm. One of the beginnings of Nazi Germany is that the uh, German uh, economy was fucking destroyed. It was in tatters. Um, So, again, let's not. How about we not fall into the economic anxiety (laughs) trap? Because that's that's not not happening. Yeah. That's not what's happening. I mean, objectively, the country's doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, There are a lot of things I could complain about. But that's just me fussing about things I care about, like, you know, civil rights and pay gaps and, you know, shit like that. Climate change. But as you said, inflation's coming down to more normal levels without a gigantic recession. That's right. The last time we had massive inflation, for those of you who are old enough to remember, I was not born yet. We had Paul Volcker invoking or on purpose a recession to get it under control. Uh-huh. And we did not, that there was a lot of talk exiting the pandemic that, and then we started seeing the inflation that it would be very hard to thread the needle and get a quote unquote soft landing. Guess what, folks? We threaded, threaded that fucking needle. <laughs> like, wages are up. Inflation is going down. Job numbers are going up. Like Putin hasn't rolled through Ukraine. Israel, <laughs> like, yes, I mean, objectively... Biden has not done a perfect job, but in the realm of outcomes, this is a pretty good set of outcomes. Obviously I'm still horrified what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Gaza, but these are also situations that an American president does not have full control over. That's correct. Neither of them have spiraled into world wars or even honestly major global conflicts. Yep. Um, So I I mean, I just have to say that like immigration is a problem. But the reason, I mean, illegal immigration is a problem on the southern border. My solutions would be things like, you know, actually, you know, fund immigration services appropriately, make it easier to become a citizen, yada, yada, yada. Um, But it's not existentially threatening to the United States. And in fact, we should be naturalizing more immigrants, welcoming more of them in. And the reason so many people are coming is twofold. First of all, there is some... Uh, there is some political instability in, in, in South America, but also the American economy is doing pretty damn good. Yeah. Also, um, I'm, I, unfortunately, I wish America could have some bit of accounting for the economic instability in Central South America. Fortunately, we had nothing to do with destabilizing any of those places for uh, political or CIA gain. Never. <laughs> Never. But like, 
See, this is this is where it comes through to me. That like, so we know that there is polarization when it comes to feelings about the economy. That when there's a Democratic president, Democrats feel like the economy is doing better. When there's a Republican president, Republicans feel like the economy is doing better. Democrats feel like it's doing a little bit worse. The difference is, is that Democrats only polarize a little bit. Mm. Republicans polarize massively, and you mm-hmm. can see swings literally month to month. Great. Great. In which nothing in the economy has meaningfully changed, and suddenly the moment Joe Biden becomes president, the economy sucks. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that, like, for those of you out there who want to go to the economic anxiety argument, it's not actually based on anything real. I mean, and you know what? A fair question to have, I think, I mean, a fair conversation to have about just, like, kind of the economic dead ends that do plague rural America and red states Mm -hmm. and red counties. Like that is a fair question to have. That's a fair conversation to have 100%. But that's an entirely separate question than why are you voting for, um, you know, the son of a billionaire, um, uh, you know, real estate tycoon who wears a girdle and a lot of makeup. I'm just saying. and it's not as if, you know, Trump is out there throwing out really detailed policy proposals Correct. to solve the problems in rural America. Yeah. I also just want to say a really quick note. One of my first jobs out in the working world was uh, for the lawyer who was contracted to the Indianapolis um, Mexican consulate. Um, and two things that I always just love to state, which is like, overwhelmingly the cases that we dealt with were traffic cases. So we're talking about like tickets, driving without a license, like often people who had committed zero crimes, had a taillight out, got pulled over, a whole mess sort of ensues, but people who are not committing violent crimes. And secondly, at the border, what happens, like even if you're seeking asylum, like the kind of the same thing happens, which is just like you show them some kind of ID, probably from your, you know, where you're coming from, if you have it, Um, then they assign you like a case number and you're supposed to come back to a certain like court or place to like have your thing processed. Mm-hmm. 98% of the people who get those assignments come back for their court date, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because this is their first interaction with the immigration system and the immigration system says, cool, cool, cool. We love to have you come back on the state. And they say, great, great, great. And that's the exchange. The 2% exactly. that don't come back are mostly estimated to have returned to their countries already. Let's just put it this way. All of why did we preface this conversation by reminding people that these this is in New Hampshire? Uh, because New Hampshire is very white and it's very far from the border. Yeah. So like I get I'm in New York City right now. Like, yeah, there are a lot of people who are here and we're dealing with an issue surrounding uh, 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 people who have migrated here illegally. Sure. There is a real crisis here and sort of figuring out how to care for all of them. And yet somehow New York is going to overwhelmingly vote for Joe Biden. Weird. Weird. Because strangely enough, as much as, uh, as illegal immigration can sometimes cause problems in the short term, it is not existentially threatening. It's not destroying New York City. And this is the place where the immigrants actually are. Yeah. Yeah. So – it is a hypothetical theoretical problem, not a real problem yep. in these places that are voting overwhelmingly for Trump. Because the places in New York State that are going to vote for Trump are going to be upstate and rural. And guess what? Immigrants ain't going there. There you go. Um, as 
as a um I heard this fascinating clip that they had clipped out for another like right wing nut job sort of monitoring podcast that I listened to where this guy calls into the Rush Limbaugh show and it's uh I think it's after January 6th. Anyway, this dude this dude is losing it. He is weeping. He is he's cavanaughing all over the place, right? Yep. And the thing that he keeps saying is for 30 years we voted for Republicans cuz they weren't them, right? Like mm-hmm. just I never want anybody, not that anybody in our podcast, any listeners of this podcast need to be reminded, but like, that's all it really is. Brown, brown, bad, brown, brown, bad. Look different, bad. So like our listener demographic, our average listener, the average Stewie uh, is college educated. Majority of our listeners actually have graduate degrees, which I think is impressive. Um, And uh, between the age of 30 and 45. And uh, we're and male, we skew a little male, like 70, 30. But that's also true for podcasts in general. Um, so, and we, we have big clusters of listeners on the coasts and in uh, <laughs> more urban areas in the Midwest. Um, so I have to say that we are also, all of us, you, me, you and me, Sarah, but also our, uh, the Stewies, uh, we are also the people, we are all the people destroying America. Of course. Um, so good job, everybody. Like, thank you so much. Good work. I was going to say, everybody sharpen up your axes tomorrow. We all know it's uh, it's America destroying axe sharpening day. It's a national <laughs> holiday. Yeah. And like, that's what gets me about all of this. And like, I guess like this is what makes me particularly sad. And I was trying to figure out why I was so like upset by what's happening in the Republican uh, primary is that. And I think we should go into this just in a separate episode. I want to talk about collective action problems <laughs> and why libertarians are stupid. Um, <laughs> oh, right, libertarians. But go. like, I feel right now that we are in a situation where we are facing real problems in the world. Yep. We're facing climate change. We're facing the rise of autocracy and authoritarianism. We are seeing... The possibility of genocide in Gaza, we are seeing a lot of potential issues. AI mm-hmm. disrupting elections. We saw the first uh, attempt at an AI-generated Joe Biden uh, robocall going out in New Hampshire, which is another thing that we'll cover in its full episode. Um, and yet, our politics are still driven on the right by this sense of like petty grievance over like the mid 20th century, the fact that like the civil rights movement happened. That's all it is. And like women's lib happened. Like they're still pissed about it. And they're like, we're going to undo 1964. Fuck y'all. That's um, all. It's, it's being mad about that. And the 19th amendment, it's just like, well, we let these bitches vote and everything's been shitty ever since then. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, so in the summer in between high school and college, I worked for uh, an old graduate grad of my alma mater. He graduated in the fifties and he would go on these long rants about how, uh, allowing women and minorities into my alma mater had ruined the institution because it had there been all male and mostly white when he was there. He's like, except for, you know, you, you're one of the good ones. Not one of the good ones. No. And I mean, he was my boss at the time. He was also paying me pretty well, you know, in 2005, 2006, 
uh, like I was paying 18 bucks an hour off of the books. Like oh that was a lot of money back then. God, right. But still, I mean, I just smiled and nodded. I'm like, and in my head, I'm like, okay, boomer. Uh, oh like you racist, sexist old fuck. Um, he also bought me lunch. So, you know, eh, tomato, you know, you win some, you lose some, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I got the money, sacrificed some dignity. It was good training for the rest of my life. Um, and this is why you're such a good um, feminist ally, because you understand this dynamic perfectly. Yeah. And I was just like, and like, instead of, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about, you know, the problems really facing America, here's this dude, wealthy as fuck, right? Like, living a great life, has a beautiful estate, literally an estate, Right. Um, Great. Great. Yeah, a lovely family, children, grandchildren, everything. And he's pissed that they let women into the college that he hasn't gone to in half a cent in 50 years. Oh, oh, uh, this is I I this is besmirching my memory of something half a century ago. Like Jesus Christ. I mean, this is just like I'll never know what it's like to be a white man, but like every time a lady or browner remake of a white dude classic franchise comes out mm-hmm. and the reaction is explosive because it's you've ruined my memory of this thing. And I'm like, <laughs> can you imagine if if that's the metric, right? Like if that is the metric, every time a person of color got called a slur or a microaggression on the same day that a good thing happened and it ruined that thing, then like, mm, no good things ever happen. <laughs> no good things ever happen. That's, that's exactly right. Also then Michael Bay would be history's greatest monster because, Oh my God, the transformers movies. Um, and like, I mean, so there, my high school you know, in suburban New York, like literally one of the nicest, richest places in the world. Um, Our mascot was the Indian when I was there, which was highly controversial. Even when I was in high school, we tried to change it. It didn't work. Well, they did change it. Fuck yeah. Right. They did change it. I think like almost 10 years ago now, (laughs) I think that was like eight years ago or something like that. And on these Facebook pages, because, you know, we're old people, a lot of uh, alums of the high school, all the old white dudes and old white people were volcanically angry. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm just like, hey, it's not our high school anymore. If the kids there want to change it and that's what they want, it's their school. Like, good for them. That's the attitude. Like, you were, you graduated in 1973, my dude. You have no, you also like, we have no ownership over our institutions. Like they owe your institution that you went to, like you said, it's dead and gone. They owe you nothing. Like, I I don't, I don't, this is again, this is like what conservatism is, which is just like a die hard resistance to any kind of change. Right. (laughs) And that's why I feel sometimes a little despondent. So maybe cheer me up a little here, Sarah, that like we're doomed to have stupid arguments we're okay. So my analogy is that we are on the Titanic. We can see the iceberg. Well, in the Titanic, it was hitting the iceberg. In our case, it's all of the melting. <laughs> and I am saying, and we, you and I are desperately trying to get to the helm to turn the ship while we have a bunch of fucking like Karens 
holding us back because they're mad about the hors d'oeuvres on the menu today. I think that's about right. And we cannot get to the controls to turn the ship even better. They're mad about the hors d'oeuvres on the menu 50 years ago. There you go. There you go. (laughs) They're still, they're actually, they're complaining about the hors d'oeuvres, but what they're really mad about is that there are brown people allowed to come on the boat and in their section, you know? (laughs) That's a really good point. And like, sometimes I just, I look at having to go through another Trump election and it just fills me with despair that I'm that you and I are going to be fighting the same fucking stupid fights over and over again until we die. Uh, certainly until he dies. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do really think that like the only current plan for like the relief path of all this is like when he dies, right? Like he will be, he will be become a martyr on some level, right? Like he has to, you know, have this sort of canonization in the minds of the dumbest people in America and that will happen. But like him being dead means that there will not be any Trump, another Trump. And as we've seen from the last four years, they accept no substitutions. <laughs> so I have never rooted so hard for a heart disease or syphilis <laughs> in my entire life. But this is me saying to heart disease and syphilis to heart this disease is your moment. this is this your is time your fucking moment to be goddamn <laughs> heroes so speaking about goddamn heroes sarah tell me about metal honey well uh you should buy it because i need to pay my fucking rent in uh six <laughs> days so um Please do that at metalhoney.com. I have a sale going on, which is uh, hot sauce, um, hot honey, and the So It Goes sweet and sour sauce are all $10 or less. So go get some. I'll ship it to you. Um, Along with the box this month, everybody is getting some watermelon tamarind candies and some Chinese good luck strawberry New Year's candies. So. Oof, those sound fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so where can they find these find pro- fine products? M-E-T-A-L-H-O-N-E-Y, just like it sounds. Metalhoney.com and just place your orders and uh, I usually can ship them out the next day. So in this dark, dark time, and I mean January, not the election <laughs> now, and cold period, I'm just saying a little bit of heat can go a long way. That's exactly warm your right. body, warm your soul. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, help Sarah with rent. Please. (laughs) Thanks. And as always, you can find uh, the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. I don't know if those of the the weirdos out there. We have one listener, one, who uses Google Podcasts (laughs) exclusively. Google Podcasts is getting phased out. So you're going to have to go somewhere normal, you fucking animal. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Womp womp. Uh, <laughs> it always cracks me up because this is one of our most dedicated listeners. Um, I'm sorry, Google Pass is going away, but you can go to anywhere, like, subscribe, rate, and review if you like it. If you don't like it, you know, do something else. Um, but please, that helps us with the algorithm. Um, share it. You can find us uh, on the platform formerly known as Twitter at Perp Stew. Um, and uh, send in your questions and concerns, things that you want to talk about, things you want us to cover, or, you know, just general grievances. I had someone who recently uh, told me that I suck. That was literally the whole message. You suck. Ah, 
always positive and uplifting. You know but what? It made me laugh. I was going to say, you don't suck, Matt. In fact, you're the opposite of suckage. You are nothing but an addition to every situation that you go to. Oh, thank you very much. And I also <laughs> think uh, the same about you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Uh, and that's going to do it for us uh, this week. This has been The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious. Bye.